you got your Bibles, you can go to Matthew chapter 24. I'll give you a chance to turn there. An exciting passage of scripture, Matthew 24 and 25. And I mean, you guys know the regular pace. If you're a regular here, you kind of know we, we typically move through most of a chapter most Sundays. I found it really tough going through the gospel of Matthew to do that. But I really sense like just as we're coming in to Matthew 24 and 25 that it's just that the Lord just wanted us to put the brakes on and to, to try and go a little bit deeper in this passage than our quick usual flyover. And so let's check it out. We're going um, to jump in at uh, verse 15 of Matthew 24. We'll read through this passage and uh, then we'll get into it. It says this, verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, Matthew says. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go, not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not return to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not occur in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and will never be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For many, for many, for False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead people astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say to you, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, wherever the corpse is, the vultures will gather. All right. Exciting piece of scripture. Hey, wow. There's a lot in there. Uh, we jumping back into Matthew 24 this morning. This is a message that Jesus taught the disciples. And this is a message just to remind you uh, from a couple weeks back, because we weren't here last week. Blake was in Jonah with you. Uh, this is a message that's called the Olivet Discourse. So if you've ever heard that, this is, this is the message. It makes up Matthew 24 and 25. This is just days before the crucifixion. Um, this is the Passion Week. And this message is really the bookend, Matthew 24 and 25. A little bit of a reminder here. This is the bookend on the ministry of Jesus. His ministry began three years earlier with him uh, sharing another message, it's called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. That's the front end of his ministry. It was a practical teaching about the values of the kingdom. It was his manifesto. It was, this is how we practically live in the kingdom of God. And now three years later, just as he's about to, days before coming to the cross, Jesus gives this other message to his disciples in Matthew 24 and 25. And it's called the Olivet Discourse. Now, where the Sermon on the Mount, the front bookend, is very practical, this, this is entirely different because Matthew 24 is, is entirely 
prophetic. And so we know the story. We've been journeying through the gospel of Matthew as Jesus leaves uh, the temple mount for the last time, the temple. He makes his way east of the city. He travels down through the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives and the disciples are there with him. And as they're going, they comment to Jesus on the beauty of the city of Jerusalem, on the beauty of the temple to which Jesus said this right at the start of Matthew 24. You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Uh, as you can imagine, and we went through this a couple Sundays ago, um, that was quite the commentary on the beauty of Jerusalem and the temple that the disciples weren't exactly expecting. And so they asked Jesus two questions, and really these two questions frame for us the, the teaching and the journey through Matthew 24 and 25. And the questions they asked them were this. Tell us, when will these things be? When? And secondly, what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the end of the age? Now, in answer to the disciples, Jesus, as we're going to see, he doesn't give them a when. You ever been in your car with your kids, you know? And they're dri you're driving, you're like on your way to grandma and grandpa's, and they ask, what do they ask? Are we there yet? I mean, it's like, when are we going to get there? And that is the question of the disciples. Tell us, Jesus, when will these things be? So what does a parent do when you ask that question? You don't give the when. You don't answer the when. And so Jesus gives no answer. In fact, later in this text, he's going to tell them this. No one knows the day or the hour. We're not going to get that far this morning. No one knows the day or the hour, but he does share with them uh, some signs, some things that serve as kind of like mileage markers along the highway as they're making the journey. You know those signs when you travel? Like, let's say you were driving to Winnipeg. No, forget Winnipeg. <laughs> Nobody wants to go to Winnipeg. Let's go to Disneyland, okay? Let's say you're driving to Disneyland and you're heading south to California. And you're going on the highway. And as you travel, there are those signs and they mark the miles that count down. You see them at various intervals. Signs that tell you the distance. Well, that's like what Jesus is going to share with his disciples, it's like we're going to see mileage markers. And so Jesus is going to, in, in that, is he's going to share with them, and we saw this a little bit already, some end time problems. You know, Matthew 24 shares end time prophecies. And then when we get to Matthew 25, we're going to see that Jesus is going to share end time uh, parables. You know, when we talk about end times and last days, it's important that we get some definitions. And so I'm going to kind of help us set those this morning as we get going. When we speak of the last days, when the Bible speaks of the last days, we, maybe the question comes up and it's like, well, are we in the last days? Are we not in the last days? When are the last days? I don't understand these things. Well, in terms of Bible speak, in terms of biblical definition, what we call the last days began with the ascension of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Remember at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was outpoured upon the early church. And as they waited in the upper room, they were there seeking the Lord in the place of prayer. And the scripture tells us, Acts chapter 2, that there was a sound of a mighty rushing wind. 
that divided tongues of fire appeared and came in and rested on each of the 120 individuals that were in that room. And they began to speak in other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance and they declared the glories of God. The onlookers and those who heard them, the outpouring of the spirit, heard them declaring the the glories of God. And Peter stood up and he began to address the onlookers and those who had observed and had heard the tongues and and the glories that they declared. And Peter stood up and he, he stood with the 11, the scripture says, and he lifted up his voice. He addressed them and he said, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Do you want to toss that verse up there, Calvin? And he said this in Acts chapter 2, verse 17. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter says, in the last days... Here we are. This is the start, the outpouring of the Spirit. And so by biblical definition, those days began with the ascension of Jesus, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and so for nearly 2,000 years, we've been living in the last days. Isn't that crazy? That that's a, it, it just shows us that God's sense of time is not our sense of time. That he lives outside those confines and those, those boundaries. Now, all of that to tie together this thought that the the disciples asked this question, you know, when will these things be and what will be the sign of the end of the age? Your coming. What will be the sign of your coming and the close of the end of the age? And so this teaching from Jesus is prophecy. We're seeing this, that it's the that it concerns the end of the age and the completion of the last days culminated in the second coming of Jesus. Now, I think it's important that we get another definition as we begin to dive into this, some clarification as we dive into this teaching from Jesus. And that's to do this, to differentiate between the second coming of Jesus and the rapture of the church. Often as believers, we read the Bible and we have the tendency, we read last days and we lump everything into one one lump together. But the rapture and the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ are not something that should be lumped together. There's something that should be separated in the scripture. I mean, you think about in the time of Jesus and what we read in the Old Testament, you know, the Jews failed to discern the first and second coming of Jesus. They failed to discern that Jesus would come as the suffering servant And then he, the Messiah, would come as the conquering king. And so when they'd read the scriptures, there was this confusion because they would see the conquering king and the suffering servant. The suffering servant, the conquering king. I don't know how to put this whole package together. And they couldn't reconcile the scriptures. Now, similarly, 
one of the difficulties for us as believers is, is in these last days to reconcile the lumping together of the second coming of Christ with the rapture of the church. We can't lump them together. They're two distinct and separate events, separate events. And, in that, and, and that matters in particular to this text. Because Matthew's gospel, as we have seen as in this journey through it, is, is written primarily to a Jewish audience. Who is it that asked Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming in the close of the end of the age? It's one of the disciples or the group of the disciples. They're Jews. And so as we go through Matthew 24 and 25, uh, though it's pertinent information for us, though it's important, though we want to understand these things, we have to recognize that this primarily deals with Israel, with the Jew. And so we have to take that, that view as we dive in here. The panorama is this. It's Israel at the end of the age. Not the church at the end of the age, but it's Israel at the end of the age. You know, going back a couple Sundays, we, we looked at the first 14 verses of this text. And we saw that, that Jesus began to answer the disciples' questions regarding the, his coming and the signs of the second age. And one of the things we saw is this, is that, that this teaching was not a chronological teaching. It wasn't a timeline laid out, but that it was, that it was topical, a topical discussion. Verse 4 through 8, we saw Jesus describe the general condition of the earth during the last days, the beginning of the tribulation, that there would be, you know, three characteristics. There would be deception, that there would be, uh, destruction, wars and rumors of wars, that there would be disasters, earthquakes and famines in the earth. Then we went through verses 9 through 14 where we, we saw Jesus describing the second half of the tribulation before he comes and its effect upon the nations. And now as we go in here, it's going to get even more specific to Israel but, you know, one of the things that we saw about prophecy and talked about two weeks ago is this, is that the purpose of Bible prophecy is not to scare us, not to freak us out, not to leave us with lots of, you know, unanswered questions that fill us with terror, but prophecy is to prepare us. You know, I think about this, like lots of people live this life without a roadmap, don't they? You know, when life throws its curves, they stumble through. When the going gets tough, they struggle to find solid footing. When the path is unclear, they're, they're left to guess what the future holds. That's not the case for you and I as we follow Jesus, as we build our lives upon the word of God. When life throws its curves, we have a guide. When, when the going gets tough, the Lord promised some 121, that he will not let our foot be moved. You know, when the path is unclear, the, the Lord spoke to Isaiah. He said, your, your ears will hear a word behind it saying, this is the way, walk in it. And Blake read to us from Psalm 23 this morning that said, even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the psalmist said, I won't fear evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So when we consider prophecy, biblical Bible prophecy is exciting. 
It should excite us. It's not to scare us because the purpose of prophecy is to say, look, there's a guide. God has a plan. He's he's laying out his plans for this world and for the future. And so, you know, often it's said this, you know, as we go through life, we we can have the Bible in one hand and maybe the newspaper in the other in a sense. And we can see God is unfolding a plan on the face of the earth. And that's, you know, there's actually an amazing verse in the Bible. I want to share it with you this morning. It's Amos 3.7. It's going to come up on the screen. It's one that's worth marking in your Bible. It says this, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. Isn't that awesome? You should have that marked down, you know. God reveals his plans through his servants, the prophets. That's why when we come to the subject of Bible prophecy, this isn't about being scared. This is a privilege, the privilege of being prepared that God is revealing to us through his word, through his prophets, his secrets, his plans for the future in this world. So the disciples, they ask these important questions about the future and about the end of the age. And though Jesus doesn't say when, it's not when, we're going to be there this day or this hour. He doesn't define those things. He does share signs for them to watch for as they journey down the road towards the end of the age and his second coming. So check out verse 15 again. It says this. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. I love it when the Bible says, understand this. Mark that one too, I would say to you. Let the reader understand. God wants you to understand this. He he wants us to understand this. Jesus spoke of the nations in verses 1 through 14. And now he's going to speak specifically of Israel and the Jews. So you might remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about this, that in 135 AD, the Romans squashed the final Jewish rebellion. They, they crushed the city of Jerusalem in AD 70. But in 135, they squashed the final Jewish rebellion. And so fed up with this Jewish problem in the land of Israel, the Romans banished all the Jews from the land of Israel. They changed the name uh, in honor of the Philistines to the land of, uh, to, the Pal- to Palestine. Now, these prophetic words of Jesus are based on an assumption. And here's the assumption that we, that we have to see and recognize is that the nation of Israel for these words to be fulfilled has to be reconstituted as a, as a nation back in the land. And we've seen that happen in uh, 1948. For 1900 years, there was no Jewish nation It was just the land of Palestine. And then in 48, a nation was born in a day. And so the Lord speaks of this. Jesus speaks of this abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel. And it's assumed, it's assumed that as we read Matthew 24, that we have a bit of a working understanding and knowledge of Old Testament prophecies. And so if we're going to understand what Jesus is saying here, then we have to understand what Daniel prophesied. And so this morning, I I want to just walk you through that kind of quickly, but we're going to walk through it. Daniel chapter 9. 
It's one, it's one of the most incredible chapters, I believe, in the Bible. Daniel chapter 9, for me, is like, it's just a pinnacle. It, it just transformed my thinking about God and his word and his plan of the ages, so much as I got familiar with it. Daniel, we know, was this. He was a Israeli, a Jewish prince. He was taken in the captivity to Babylon with the exiles. And there he served as a wise man to various Babylonian Medo-Persian kings. And Daniel 9 recounts the story that Daniel one day was reading the writings of the prophet Jeremiah. And as he was reading Jeremiah's writings, he came to an understanding that the exile in Jerusalem, uh, the exile from Jerusalem in Babylon would last 70 years. That Jeremiah had prophesied these things. And so Daniel does the math. And he realizes, man, I've been here in Babylon for like 70 years. You know, they estimate he's probably in his in his 80s, at, well into his 80s at this point. And so he does the math. He goes, God's getting close to restoring us as a nation. We're going we're gonna to go back to the land of Israel. And so Daniel goes to the place of prayer and he begins to pour out his heart to God. He begins to repent of the sins of his nation. He begins to just pray that God would revive his work in the nation of Israel and that he would restore them to the, to the land and he just intercedes and while he's crying out to the Lord in prayer, God sends the angel Gabriel uh, to him to bring a message and to bring Daniel understanding in regards to the things that he's praying about. And Gabriel shares with Daniel this word of prophecy that Daniel records for us in Daniel chapter 9. It's a prophecy concerning Israel. It's a prophecy that concerned a period of time for Israel that's called the 70 weeks. Probably heard of that. Uh, maybe you're familiar with it. And, and as Daniel explains it, he explains that each of these 70 weeks represents a period of seven years. So 70 times seven equals 490 years. And so it's a period of 490 years where God is going to unfold specific things in the future of Israel. And it's divided into three parts in Daniel chapter 9. And Daniel explains this. The first part was a period of 49 years or seven weeks. Where the angel Gabriel tells Daniel that during this time, the city of Jerusalem will be rebuilt. That in order will it go out a decree, which Isaiah prophesied from Cyrus. Cyrus will give the decree and he will let you go back to Jerusalem and Ezra and Nehemiah will oversee and they will rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple and it will all be reestablished in a period of 49 years. That's the first thing Gabriel tells Daniel. The second part is this, is that after the city is rebuilt, another 62 weeks or a period of uh, 434 years will be added to that time. And at the end of that time, this is amazing. This is where Daniel chapter 9 is totally incredible. The Messiah will come and he will die for the sins of the world. Gabriel told Daniel when the Messiah would show up. Told him. It's right there in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 9. And so when you take the the 
first 49 years, the four, and then add the 434 years, you have a period of time that totals 483 years out of 490. All that's left is seven years. And so from the time that Cyrus gives the decree, 483 years later, the Messiah will show up on the scene. That's what Daniel's told. It's incredible. Then the angel Gabriel tells Daniel about the final period of seven years. And he tells them that during this final period of seven years, a prince will come and he will make an agreement with the nation of Israel. He will make an agreement with the Jews to protect them from their enemies and he will establish peace. And then Gabriel tells Daniel, but he's going to break the peace halfway through the period of seven years. And so like I mentioned, it was the Medo-Persian king Cyrus who made the decree, it's recorded in history, outside of Bible history, that in 445 BC, he released the exiled Jews to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. It's recorded in Ezra chapter 1 in 2 Chronicles 36. There's a very famous work by a man named Sir Robert Anderson, and he went through and he just did all the math. He said, let's, let's get the calendars right. Let's use the Jewish calendar. And he, he took the... Uh, the Jews use a lunar calendar. And so he took that and their year is a 360 day year, not a 365 day year. And so it actually totaled up against our calendars, 482 years. And he says to the day from Cyrus's decree to the very day on Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem and revealed himself as the king. Isn't that incredible? Like that's incredible. That, I, that Daniel was told this to the very day the king of Israel would be revealed. And Jesus wrote in on Palm Sunday. And so Daniel chapter 9 is one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible because it, it prophesies exactly when the Messiah would come from, from that decree to rebuild Jerusalem. It's astounding. One of the things that that Gabriel told Daniel was this, is he said, you are to know these things and you're to understand them. It's interesting that Matthew says the same thing in 24. He says, you need to understand this. And when the Bible says you can know it and you can understand it, you know what that means? It means that you can know it and you can understand it. It's really incredible. <laughs> you can know it and understand it. Daniel 9.25. And so it's, it's, it's amazing, but... In, in all that math, history has been fulfilled. Prophecy has been fulfilled. But still left is this last period called a week, one week, or a period of seven years, this final period where a prince will come and make an agreement with the Jews to protect them from their enemies. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like King Jesus showed up on Palm Sunday and then the prophetic clock for the nation of Israel just paused. It just paused. And we've seen what happened through the journey of, in Matthew, that Jesus just walked out of the temple. The glory of God departed. He, he prophesied the destruction. And many other prophets in the Old Testament prophesied that the nation would be born again, that it would come alive in a day it would be born. And, and, and so it, it's amazing that there's still this one third part of Gabriel's revelation, this final period of seven years where this prince is going to come and he's going to make an agreement of peace, a treaty of peace to protect Israel from her enemies.
And then, like I mentioned, Gabriel told Daniel some further details about this seven-year period. He said that halfway through the seven-year peace treaty with Israel, the prince, this prince that negotiates all this, will put put an end to the sacrifices. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up what is called the abomination that causes desolation until the end is decreed the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Daniel 9.27. Calvin, you can throw that up on the screen. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven, and in the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. And so Jesus says in this message to his disciples. He says, so, verse 15, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, understand, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee for the mountains. So Jesus says, when you, when you see this happen, you, you got to flee for the mountains, flee from Judea to the mountains. Now, the abomination that causes desolation, you can see that. It's a clear reference to Daniel 9, 27. Daniel also talks about it in Daniel chapter 11 and chapter 12. They all mention the abomination that causes desolation. So what is the abomination that causes desolation? It's a good question. It's a good, and it, it's, you know, a good way to help us recognize that, I guess there are two parts to this that I would say this. One part is a historical fulfillment and one part is a yet-to-be-fulfilled prophetic fulfillment. Jesus is speaking of the prophetic, but there's a historical fulfillment of this abomination that causes desolation. Daniel talks about it in Daniel 11 verse uh, 31. He speaks of the historic aspect of the abomination that causes desolation. Let me tell you about it. It's a tragic true story in the history of the people of Israel. Following the reign of Alexander the Great, you know, Daniel prophesies about these different empires that are going to come. The Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greeks, then the Romans, and then one final empire that's going to come at the end of the age. During the Greek Empire, while Alexander, or after Alexander the Great, had, had ruled over that empire, a king by the, name, by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes ruled in Syria. And he was a man who believed that he was Zeus incarnate, the Greek god Zeus incarnate. And so he demanded that those who were under his reign worship him as God. And so obviously, you know, for the Jews, that was a problem. And so when Antiochus realized that the Jews were not recognizing him as God, he became enraged and he ordered the destruction of Jerusalem. And so in 170 BC, 170 years before the time of Christ, in a single day, he went with his army. He slaughtered 100,000 males in Jerusalem. They, They raped the women of the city. They looted the city of Jerusalem and Antiochus, went into the temple and went to the altar. And on the altar, he slaughtered an unclean animal, a pig. He took the blood from that pig and he forced the priest to drink the blood and to eat the raw flesh. 
And he took the blood from the pig and he smeared it all over the walls of uh, the temple. It was the abomination that causes desolation. He went into the presence of God and he sacrificed an unclean thing, a disgusting crime against God, a disgusting crime against the people of God. It was a desolation because it left Israel desolate as a people, which means they, they, they sensed that they were deserted, that they were left empty in misery. That's the historic fulfillment of what Daniel prophesied. But there's a prophetic fulfillment yet to be. This is what Daniel prophesied in, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, that in the last days a man will come on the scene and he will appear to make a seven-year, or he will make a, a seven-year peace treaty with the nation of Israel. And he'll appear to be a friend. He'll appear to be a protector. Many of them are going to believe that he actually is their Messiah. And this leader will appear to diffuse all of the problems in the Middle East. He's going to be a charismatic leader. It's so fascinating to consider. We just look at the news, right? To see all the things that are going on in the Middle East. Where, where, where's the hotbed right now? It's Syria, which is very fascinating that Antiochus originally came from Syria. You know, in Syria, the ISIS is holed up in the city of Mosul. Mosul is the ancient city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrians. The ISIS has declared that they are there. It's like a rebirth of the Assyrian Empire. That's their goal. Nineveh, ancient Nineveh is their headquarters. They're there in the center of that city from the, from the northwest. Turkey is attacking them. From uh, the northeast, the Kurds are attacking them. From the south, the Iraqis are attacking them. Bible prophecy teaches this, that Turkey is going to come in there. I, I believe ISIS is going to get wiped out and Turkey is going to organize all those countries. And next will be Israel. We talked about this two weeks ago. For the first time in Bible, the first time in history, uh, these nations that are listed in Ezekiel 38 are in the land of Syria, and they're going to get organized. They're going to come against the nation of Israel, and God is going to protect his people. That Israel is not, you know, I guess it's important that I mention this. Israel is not a righteous nation. By no means are they a God-fearing, Jesus-honoring people. They're not. They're not. But God has a plan that he is unfolding. They're going to see Jesus as their Messiah. And so the scripture reveals that this, this man that is going to organize everything and, and bring this about to happen, he is the Antichrist. He is the man of lawlessness, the man of sin. The Bible calls him the son of destruction. He'll capture the attention of the entire world. He'll appear to be a man of peace. He'll negotiate this seven-year peace treaty with Israel. But in the middle of that treaty, he's going to break it. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us, Paul tells us what is going to happen. Paul says that he will go into the temple and he will demand to be worshipped as God and he will set up an image of himself in the temple in Jerusalem. This is the abomination of desolation that's going to cause a worldwide desolation. Say, wow, are these things going to happen? Well, for a better part of 1900 years, there was no nation of Israel. Until 1948. 
This is where it's, it's significant that there are those in Israel who are prepared to rebuild a temple. They're like ready to go, man. Like get the green light and that thing is up. It's all organized. It's all ready to go. I mean, obviously, if there is an abomination that causes desolation, it can't happen unless there is a temple sitting on that temple mount in Jerusalem. And so Jesus says, when you see all this, he's telling the Jews, he's telling people, I believe the church is not present on the earth for all of this. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, you need to run. Look at verse 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. Jesus says, flee to the mountains. Zechariah spoke of this. He prophesies in Zechariah chapter 13, verses 8 and 9, that when this happens, only one-third of the people of Israel will escape the Antichrist. As he declares war on them, millions of Jews will face violence and they will face bloodshed that is beyond anything this world is yet to see. Many Bible scholars believe this, that the Jews will escape to the ancient Edomite city that is called Petra, one of the seven wonders of the world. It's a place that's located in the land of Jordan. You remember Esau in the Bible, Jacob and Esau, the, t- the twin brother of Jacob became Israel. Esau, his twin brother, the one who sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. Well, about 2,000 years before the time of Christ, Esau settled in that land of Jordan. He settled in uh, the city of Petra, actually, He settled in this, um, well, it's kind of crazy. We got to go there last year. Can we flash up the picture? I'm going to tell you about it in a minute. There's the first picture. There's the first picture. We went to the ancient city of Petra last year when we visited uh, Jordan. And the city of Petra was built in a crater in the earth. It's about a mile long, and it's these sandstone cliff faces. And the crazy thing about it is is that it's incredibly secure. It's an incredibly secure location because to get into the crater, you first have to go, I think it's about 1.6 kilometers, about a mile, um, in through this narrow, twisting valley that's like this. As you walk through the valley, on some sides, the, the faces of the valley wall, at a minimum, are 200 feet, and they approach 1,000 feet at certain points. Uh, at its narrowest, it's only uh, 12 feet wide. It's a very narrow area to get into this, this rock canyon. And so this entire city in the days of Esau could be actually guarded with just 15 soldiers. You could just position men in the right spots and, and they could warn of any coming invasion and no one could get in there because they'd have to come through this narrow, narrow canyon. Esau's descendants were called Edomites. And so they lived in the city. It was called Petra. Over over the centuries, uh, they constructed facades like this one. Do you recognize that from Indiana Jones? That's the one, man. That's the one. Pretty cool. You should come to Israel with us. (laughs) Give the plug. Um, They constructed these different facades. They built amphitheaters. They built banks. They built 
their homes, they built temples, and it was estimated that a million people lived in the city of Petra. It's incredible. But they were a proud people. They, they, they followed the pattern of Esau. They trusted in their fortress. They trusted in their strength. They didn't trust in the Lord God, Jehovah, and put their faith in Yahweh. And so God sent a prophet, one that's in our Bibles. His name's Obadiah. When you read the writings of Obadiah, you are reading a prophecy against this city right here. I encourage you to go home and check it out. God sends Obadiah on the scene and in the name of the Lord, he prophesies because you trust in your strength and you trust in this fortress, God's not gonna put up with that. You're gonna, you're gonna fall. You're gonna be wiped out. And so nobody knows what happens to the Edomites in history. They believe just some sort of plague hit them and they died off and it became a lost city in the history of the world. For many, for many years, people heard stories about the rock city of Petra. Bible teachers would talk about it, but for most people, you know, it was kind of like the lost city of Atlantis. <laughs> you know, a mystery, a mythological place that never existed. And then in 1812, a Bible teacher uh, by the name of John Burkhart, who was an explorer, he was an adventurer, he was determined to find Petra. And so he did. He found it. They began to ex excavate it one wheelbarrow at a time. You know, one donkey at a time pulling the sand out away from those facades. Can you throw those pictures back up, man? Did you see the one of George? There's George. Standing with the, the Jordanian guards in front of the, the, the facade there because we weren't allowed to get any closer than that. But those guys look pretty cool, eh? That's last year. This time last year. So he, he found this city and they began to excavate. And we know this Petra's one of the seven wonders of the world. Like the grandeur and the, the splendor of what is found there is like totally stunning. Over the entrance to the city as you come into it, it's, it's carved into the rock face two huge eagle's wings. The book of Revelation declares that the remnant of Israel will be saved on eagle's wings. And so it's believed by Bible prophecy, guys, that the nation of Israel, when, when this abomination that causes desolation, the, th the third that get our way are going to flee into this ancient area called Petra. It's interesting that in the last century, there was another Bible teacher, a guy by the name of Blackstone. Blackstone passed away in 1935. Now remember this, state of Israel was formed in what year? 1948. So he passed away 15 years before they were ever in existence. But Blackstone was convinced about Bible prophecy. He was convinced about God's plan for the people of Israel. And he was so convinced that Petra was the place where the Jews would be kept safe during the tribulation that he went out and he spent his personal fortune on buying Hebrew New Testaments. He took those New Testaments and he put them, he marked them up. He marked gospel passages in there. He marked important passages like Revelation chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 24 and Daniel chapter 9. And he marked out the gospel. He sealed these, these New Testaments in jars and he went and he buried them all over the city of Petra. Um, 
he believed that when the Jews escaped to the city of Petra and they began to work and make, make it a functional place for them to live, that as they began to dig, they would dig in the sand and in the sand, they would find the word of God. It's incredible. Uh, there's actually a prophecy about it and I, I got to look it up for you because I don't have it offhand this morning. But that literally the word of God will come out of the ground for them in the city of Petra and they will have this revelation. Jesus is going to, of who Jesus is. And in, so in those days, Jesus says this, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, Get out of Judah. A similar instruction is given in Luke. Luke chapter 21 verse 20. But it's different in this sense that it deals with a different time period. Luke's instruction deals with the siege that happened in Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Romans. The sign in Luke's gospel was this. When you see the armies come to Jerusalem, then you need to flee. He was speaking about AD 70, but this is where Matthew's gospel is different because it refers to the time of the great tribulation and Israel's future. And the sign to flee is the abomination that causes desolation. And so we have to be careful not to confuse Matthew 24 with Luke chapter 21 because it messes up your concept of Christ's return actually when it happens. There's, there's those who blend those together and they actually believe Jesus came back and 70 AD and that we're living in this spiritual millennium right now and it's, it's wrong. We can't blend those passages together. And so Jesus says this in verse 21. We're going to wrap up pretty quick here. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, will never be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jesus says, if these days aren't cut short, if I don't cut them short, no one will survive. And so this, this relates to the Jews. And it's cool here. They're, they're called the elect. The church is called the elect too. But the church has been raptured at least three and a half years earlier, I think. Verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ or there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a corpse, there the vultures will gather. I love verse 27. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And the Lord says when he comes back, it's going to be like lightning. There's no, there's no guessing. There's no wondering. It's not like, oh, maybe it happened, you know. Jehovah Witnesses got their date. Mormon church has got their date, you know, all these different things. It, it's, there's going to be no guessing. It will be like a flash of lightning. You know, I look around the world today and we have to keep our Bible in one hand as we look at the news and all that is going on around in the world. Jesus is going to come. He's going to come like a flash of lightning at the end of the age. But before that, 
He's going to come for his church. He's going to come for his church and we'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. You know, I just want to leave you with one verse as we close uh, this morning. It's from Romans chapter 13. It's like, well, why all this stuff, God? What's this for? I want to remind you, it's not to scare us. It is to prepare us. You know, I often think about these things that God could have placed you and I anywhere at any point in history. He chose to plant us today to serve him, to live for him. Paul said this to the Roman church. He said, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Church, the day is at hand. The day is at hand. It's time to wake up from our sleep and serve God in the places where he has placed us in this earth for his glory and for his name. It's exciting stuff. Amen. Let's pray this morning. Worship team, I'm going to invite you guys to come.